Do you think it is a privilege to belong to God's people? Do you think it is a privilege? And if so, how much of a privilege do you think it is? How much? I'm guessing that between us, we probably have quite a wide variety of answers to those two questions. I expect many of us are so used to the idea that Jesus gives us a privileged position as God's people, so used to it that it often seems commonplace. Perhaps we sometimes even feel a sense of entitlement, as if we have a natural right to come to God and demand things of him, have him answer our prayers, and meet our needs. Perhaps we almost feel like God was bound to save us, why wouldn't he save me? Well, maybe you are a Christian, but your sense of privilege has been in decline for some time. Frankly, following Jesus is hard. You're struggling with the sacrifices or the unpopularity that following Jesus brings. And maybe a quiet, comfortable life without Jesus is beginning to seem more appealing than belonging to him. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're not sure what the answer is, whether it is a privilege to belong to God or not. Perhaps you've seen something attractive about Jesus or about church, but you're just not totally convinced yet that it's worth it. Perhaps you're not even sure what it means to belong to God's people, or why, why Jesus is the only way in. By the way, if, if that is you, if you still have questions like that at the end, please do come and talk to me or Charlie or someone. Please feel free to ask those questions. We would love to try and work them through with you. Maybe, finally, you know that it is a privilege to belong to God's people, but you feel a bit like a second-class citizen. You feel like an outsider or an imposter, as if you don't really belong. You love Jesus, so you suspect that he loves other people more than you because of their race or class or culture, or just because their lives appear more neat and tidy and sorted than yours. These are perspectives I, I hope to address through the course of this sermon. So let me ask you again, how much of a privilege do you think it is to belong to God's people through Jesus? In Ephesians 2, in the passage we've just heard read, Paul shows us that it is a massive privilege to belong to God's people. He tells us why as he reveals part of the mystery of God's will that he spoke of back in chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, he unravels that mystery by explaining how God is working to unify all kinds of people on earth under Christ. And in doing so, he starts to answer his own prayer from chapter 1, verse 18, by showing us how we, the church, are becoming a rich and glorious inheritance for God. 
and he continues in our passage along similar lines to the first half of chapter 2. So in some ways, you know, the main points of this sermon are going to sound quite similar to last week, because Paul is reinforcing just how big a transformation has taken place for those whom Christ serves. So how do we grasp the massive privilege that Christians have as God's people? How do we grasp it? Well, firstly, Paul says, by remembering who we were. Remember who you were, he says in verse 11 to 12. Now, he's speaking to the Ephesians specifically as Gentiles, as people who were not ethnically Jewish, who were not physically circumcised, outwardly at least. And that means they did not belong to the nation of Israel, who were God's chosen people from the time of Abraham, 4,000 years or so ago. Most of us, as far as I'm aware, would fall into the same category. We are Gentiles by birth. We are not Jewish. And Paul says in verse 12 that the Ephesians, as uncircumcised Gentiles, were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. That means they could not come into God's covenant people unless they themselves were circumcised and followed the law of Moses. Basically, they had to become Jewish to become part of God's people, to draw near to God, to come to the temple in Jerusalem and experience the blessings of knowing God and intimacy with him. That's not to say that all ethnic Israelites were automatically saved. They weren't, unless their hearts were circumcised too. And a circumcised heart is just an Old Testament way of describing a heart that truly loves and fears God and expresses that by obeying his will and trusting his promises. Only Israelites whose hearts were circumcised like this were saved. But similarly, none of this means that God never blessed Gentiles in the Old Testament. But as a general rule, if you weren't circumcised outwardly and following the law of Moses, you couldn't be part of his people. And look where that left the Gentiles in the second half of verse 12. They were without hope and without God in the world. Aren't those words chilling? Isn't that a terrible thing, to be without hope and without God? Think what it means. Even the most religious Gentiles who were devoted to their deities, who slavishly made sacrifices and offerings to them week after week, who followed their demands, were doing it utterly in vain. the idols that they worshipped were not gods at all. They were just the imaginings of human minds at best or demonic inventions at worst. Because the Gentiles didn't worship and didn't know the God of Israel, the only God who single-handedly made the heavens and the earth, they didn't actually know God at all they might as well have been atheists. This is really sobering. 
would be a bit like investing millions of pounds in a Van Gogh painting or an exquisite diamond only to discover it's a fake. And it's the same for anyone today who does not worship the God of Israel supremely as he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. As, John sa- sorry, as Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we reject the Son, we reject the Father too, and we are left with nothing. So the Ephesians were without God, and that meant they were without hope. Why why without hope? Well, there are more reasons than we have time to explore. But perhaps the most serious is because there was nothing they could do, as there is nothing we can do of ourselves, to save ourselves from death. It will come sooner or later, and when it does, all of the ease and the comfort and the riches or the good deeds in this world will be of no use whatsoever. We can't take them with us, but worse than that, they can't save us from God's judgment. As we saw last week in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, we are so dead in sin apart from the saving work of Christ that we could never do anything to earn God's favor. We were so enslaved to sin's lusts and cravings that even if that was in a veiled, subtle, middle-class kind of way, that we could not possibly escape by ourselves. We were children of wrath. And that meant we had no hope of better things in eternity. So as Gentiles, the Ephesians, and most of us, before we were saved, were without hope and without God in the world. And this, by the way, is why we need to keep sharing the gospel. This is why we need to keep praying for and supporting world mission and consider going ourselves. There's no other way that people will receive hope. Now Paul also said in chapter 2 verse 3 that the Jewish people were dead in sins and under wrath too. It wasn't just the Gentiles. Presumably because the majority in Israel were so often unfaithful, tragically, breaking God's commandments. But at least they had the covenants. At least they had the promises. At least they had the very words of God to offer the hope of a redeemer and the promise of salvation. At least they had the sacrificial system and the temple, when it wasn't a heap of rubble, to point them to Christ and to offer the possibility of forgiveness and intimacy with God. For the rest of us, we had no such hope. And that is something that should humble even the longest-standing Christian among us. It should sober even those who feel most confident and assured of their salvation. Because we had no prior right to expect anything from God except wrath. And so we must never take our salvation for granted. As if God owed it to us. And though the vast majority of the global church is now populated by Gentiles, 
something of a reversal from Paul's day, we should never forget that we too were, you know, it was us as Gentiles who were far away, as Paul says in, in verse 13. It is only by Christ's blood that we have been brought near. So if you want to get a real sense of the privilege that Christians have as God's people, start by remembering what you were. Remember what you were, especially if you find your faith wavering. Do you, do you find yourself wondering if life would be better if you didn't follow Jesus? Please look at the alternative. What good is a few years of ease and comfort now, which could so easily be taken away by the next pandemic or the next economic collapse or a car accident? What use is a few years of ease compared with eternity without hope and without God? And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, can you see how desperate and hopeless it is to be without Christ? Do you realize that none of the things you put your trust in can bring you to God or bring everlasting security? Please don't be deceived. Listen on. See what a beautiful thing happens when we come to Jesus and when we trust him as our saviour. And that brings us to the second point, covering verses 13 to 22. How do we grasp the massive privilege that Christians have as God's people by rejoicing in what we have become? Whether you were born Jewish or Gentile, rejoice in what you have become. By the blood of Christ, believing Gentiles have been brought near to God, Paul says in verse 13. More than that, in verse 14, Christ has made peace between Jewish and Gentile believers. And this peace is so important, he mentions it four times in verses 14 and 15 and 17. You see, under the law of Moses, uncircumcised Gentiles, as I was, were unholy and unable to enter the assembly of God's people. They couldn't worship at the temple because they were considered unclean because of their lifestyle and their practices, right down to the food they ate. And that meant that the Jews in Paul's day often shunned the Gentiles, separated from them, and then the Gentiles came to despise the Jews for their apparent prejudice and superiority as a result. There was hostility between them, as Paul says. And I wonder if we see a residue of that in our own day. If you look at, on the one hand, the reclusiveness of Orthodox Jewish communities who are still trying to follow the law so faithfully, and on the other hand, the scourge of anti-Semitism that continues to fester around the world where there is just this ongoing prejudice against Jewish people. But in verse 14 we see that Christ has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. How? Well, in verse 15, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. 
That is not to say that the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments are now irrelevant to Christians. Paul will go on to use the Fifth Commandment as, as justification for children obeying their parents in chapter 6, verse 1. So the law is still a valuable guide to God's character and to righteous, holy living. But in Christ, we are no longer under the law. It is not our judge because his blood has paid the price for every sin that the law could accuse us of. Neither Jewish followers of Jesus nor Gentile followers of Jesus are condemned by the law anymore. In fact, we're not even directly accountable to the law because we are under a new covenant. And in that covenant, all the ceremonies of the law, the, the requirement for circumcision, the requirement for separation from unclean people and things, and the rules about washing and dietary restrictions, etc., they are set aside. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled all of their requirements. He was perfectly clean, pure, and holy in God's sight. And when we come to him, we are united spiritually with him so that we are made clean in God's sight too. Moreover, our hearts are circumcised by his spirit. Again, thinking to that Old Testament image, that, that is to say he teaches us to love and fear and to trust and obey God. We receive true circumcision. So Jesus has set aside the law. And in doing so, he has taken away every reason for separation and hostility between Jews and Gentiles who follow Jesus. Because both, in Christ, have been made truly clean and acceptable to God. And if you are a Christian, do you realize that is you? Do you realize that you are clean and pure and holy and pleasing in God's sight? But Christ has done even more than that. Do you see the reason he's destroyed hostility in the second half of verse 15? It was to create one new humanity out of believing Jews and Gentiles. One new humanity. So he hasn't just turned Gentile believers into Jews or Jewish believers. No, he's done a work of new creation. He has, in him, both Gentiles and Jews who believe transcend what they were before. Yes, Christians are rooted in Israel, Yes, we are united with faithful Israelites from past generations by faith. But we are no longer defined by race or culture. We are defined primarily by Christ. And in him, in verse 16, we are together reconciled to God in one body. The church, the body of Christ. We now have peace with God and with each other. The gospel works both vertically and horizontally. And that enables all Christians, whether from a Jewish background or a Gentile background, to come to God on an equal footing. Not as fearsome judge, 
verse 18, as a loving father. Gentile believers like me get to come to God as fellow citizens with Jewish believers and members of God's household, verse 19. Isn't that an extraordinary privilege? We who were excluded for thousands of years are now included on the same footing. We who had no right to be among God's people have been given equality. It's an even more stark turnaround, I would say, than African-American slaves being set free and being given the vote after the American Civil War. And better still, both Jewish and Gentile believers have come together to be the very dwelling place of God. Verse 22, as he lives in us by his spirit. He is building up believers across the world and down the ages to become a holy and beautiful temple for his presence. Isn't that an extraordinary privilege? That God should live in us and be pleased to take broken sinners and rebuild us into something beautiful. Remember our sermon series in Exodus over the summer, if you were here? God's dwelling place in the Old Testament was a beautiful place. But it was also a holy place that hardly anyone could enter. The people were not made worthy yet. But in this new humanity which Jesus is creating, everyone gets to access God's presence on the same basis with complete intimacy because his spirit comes to us and lives in us and makes us beautiful. It's a little bit like the queen leaving Buckingham Palace and coming to live on a campsite with a bunch of ordinary people like us. So I'll ask again, if you are a, a Christian and from a Gentile background like me, don't we have an extraordinary privilege we have gone from being without God and without hope in the world to being given full equality among his people and becoming his very temple. This is the rags to riches story to end all such stories. What can we do but rejoice? Next time you say your prayers, and ask God for things. Or next time you thank him for your food and address him as Father, think what an incredible privilege it is that you can call on God in that way. Because it was not always so. Rejoice in what you have become. And if you are a Christian from a Jewish background, do you see what an extraordinary privilege you have in setting aside the, the Mosaic law and making you part of his one new humanity, Jesus has made you perfectly clean and holy forever in a way that you never could be under the law. No more ritual washing, no more segregation, no more condemnation. He has given you access to God that you could never dream of under the old covenant. 
again, what can you do but rejoice? And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, don't you want this? Wouldn't you love to be part of God's people in this way? To have peace with God himself? To be intimately connected with him by his spirit? You can. Simply by trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Please talk to me or Charlie afterwards if that is you. We'd love to help you. And finally, to finish, I want to come back to that fourth group of people I mentioned in my introduction. Anyone who feels like a second-class citizen among God's people because of your race or culture or class or simply the mess of your life. Do you see what this passage means for you? Because if you are part of Christ's one new humanity, as verse 15 says, God no longer defines you primarily by your race or your class or your culture or even your performance. Culture and race still have value in God's kingdom. We see that in Revelation 21, verse 26. We're told that the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into the new creation, God's forever dwelling place with his people. I take it that includes culture at its best from all the different nations. But you are defined first and foremost, I am defined first and foremost, by Christ as one of his, united with him, and spiritually speaking, seated with him in heaven, even now, as 2 verse 6 says. We are already there in glory in one sense. He provides your value. He provides your identity and your right to belong. A bit like a friend in a high place who gets you into the executive box at all the shows and concerts and sports fixtures. And so, verse 19, you are a fellow citizen with the rest of God's people. No less holy and no less treasured, no less indwelt by God than, than any other Christian. There are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. No second-class citizens. Please rest assured of that. But I should also say that if there are ways we behave or things we say as a church family which make you feel like a second-class citizen, we are falling short. We're falling short of our identity as one new humanity. And I take it that identity is something we are meant to live out as best we can. We should, not, we should try our best not to let race or cultural distinctions or class distinctions like Jew and Gentile divide us. It may be that because so many of us in this church family are white and middle class and English or British, we consciously or unconsciously do or say things that make you feel like an outsider or like 
white English middle class culture is the only proper way of doing things in church. And if that is the case, I am really sorry. I know that Richard Weston has been working particularly hard over the last few years to to help us as a church see how we could better affirm and celebrate different cultures among us. And I have to confess that with the, the constant struggles of simply keeping my head above water over my first year in ministry and trying to keep up with the ever-changing COVID regulations and the impact on how we do church from week to week, intercultural church has mostly slipped from my mind. Perhaps this year we can start to raise it back up the agenda. And if you have experienced feeling like an outsider at MRC, please speak to me or Charlie or one of the elders It may be that you've already spoken to Richard about it before, and if so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that the message has gotten lost or hasn't got through. I know I'm probably not as up to speed as some of the other elders because I've only been here for a year. Please remind us, please tell us again, so that we can learn and try to do things better. Because in God's kingdom, there are no second-class citizens. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we find it deeply uncomfortable when your word reminds us of what we were, what we are apart from Christ. Our pride is so reluctant to see ourselves as deserving of wrath, as hopeless, as without you, as if all our pious thoughts counted for nothing. Father, please give us humility to accept your verdict so that we would receive with greater joy a sense of the privilege that we now have if we are in Christ, whether from Jewish or Gentile backgrounds. Father, help us to rejoice in this incredible uh, transformation you have brought about. That we are one new humanity. That we are equal before you. That we have full access to you. Father, impress this upon our hearts that we would rejoice. And if there is anyone here, Father, for whom this is not true yet, please have mercy and give them courage to, to speak about it and ask and to turn to you in prayer, to seek what Christ offers. And we pray, Father, would you help us as a church, even if it is in stumbling and faltering ways, to learn, to grow, as a body that better expresses what we are, as one new humanity. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.